And so as I was looking at the results of the survey, just that family is a gift. Relationships are a gift. They are a gift from our loving God to, you know, give us an opportunity to feel his love on this earth as we love each other. You know, we, we help feel his love. We help share his love with each other. You know, our relationships matter. And the more we lead into those relationships, the more we can learn about our Heavenly Father and his love for us. I'm Sarah Jane Weaver, editor of The Church News. Welcome to The Church News Podcast. We are taking you on a journey of connection as we discuss news and events of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This episode of The Church News Podcast is dedicated to the American Family Survey, an annual nationwide survey of 3,000 Americans by Desert News and the Center for Study of Elections and Democracy at Brigham Young University. The eighth annual survey found that Americans are divided politically and losing confidence in marriage, but loving their own families. To talk about this important survey, we welcome Suzanne Bates, the national politics editor at Desert News. Suzanne has a graduate degree in journalism from Columbia University and a bachelor's degree in political science from Brigham Young University. She is originally from Toronto, Canada, and now lives in South Jordan with her family. A former Air Force spouse, Suzanne and her husband, Matthew, have five children who were all born in different states. Suzanne, welcome to the Church News Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's so great to have you with us and to talk about the American Family Survey and hopefully a little bit about your own family as well. I'm hoping we can start and have you just give us sort of an overview on what the American Family Survey is. Sure. Yeah. We survey 3,000 adults a year and ask them questions about how their families and their marriages are doing. We also like to ask them about sort of some of the hot issues of the day. So we got our results in early September. They were asked the questions in August. So we had some interesting findings this year. Well, I remember reading a Desert News headline that absolutely caught my attention, and it said, is marriage dying? So what did we find in the survey? Yeah, we found that fewer people are getting married from when the survey started in 2015. Um, the number of people who are married has gone down 5% from 50% to 45%. This is adults in the United States. And a similar number of people are now single. So it's not that they're cohabitating or in relationships. It's that people are no longer getting married, which is, you know, a, a finding that causes alarm for people depending on what they think uh, marriage does for people. So is this indicating a loss of confidence in the institution of marriage? You know, we don't know exactly why it is that people aren't getting married. There was a sort of sense of hopelessness that we found in the survey this year, especially on economic issues. People don't believe that they're going to be as well off as their parents. They don't believe their children are going to be as well off as they are. Um, so you wonder if that is playing into this idea that they shouldn't get married or don't want to get married. But what we also see is that people who are not married are more likely to say they're lonely and are more likely to feel like they're not connected in their communities. So that's a cause for concern. Well, you just said so many interesting things. Uh, and the first part of it is that something has happened to the American dream. People don't believe that they'll be better off than their parents. Right. Yeah. It used to be in the 70s and the 80s, about 70 to 80 percent of people thought that they were going to do better than their parents did. 
And now we're down to 40%, which is a huge drop. I mean, that's almost cut in half, right, in a generation or two. And so why is that? You know, why are people feeling less hopeful about the future? It's hard because we get this sort of surface level data and you really want to go back and ask more questions like follow up. You wish you were on the phone with people to say, why do you feel that way? You know, why are you feeling so hopeless? And I thought it was really interesting, too, that parents are unlikely to think that their children will do better than they did. And non-parents are even more likely to say the next generation won't do as well. So, again, you wonder, are they not having children because they think that the next generation is going to do well? And so they think, why bother having a kid? There are a lot of interesting reasons why this might be, right? Are people worried about an issue like climate change? Are they worried about the economy? You know, what is it that's driving this pessimism about the future? Well, and, you know, Suzanne, you and I have kids that are about the same age. Uh, My oldest is 23. And I wonder how she's ever going to be able to afford a house. Yeah, no, for sure. My oldest is uh, 22, and he he's going to be in the Air Force. He's at the Air Force Academy right now. So he um, probably won't buy a house for a while because he'll be moving around so much. But really, like, housing prices are so high, and then now we've had interest rates go up. And so, you know, it's even more expensive to buy a home. And that was another big issue this year with inflation and um, some of the economic upheaval we've had this year. People are feeling kind of pessimistic. And so, you know, although I have to say, when I was a kid, I felt like there was this sort of pessimism about jobs. And, there, were, you know, in the 70s and 80s, there were high interest rates. And it does sometimes feel cyclical, like, you know, things are going to get better at some point, right? But the fact that this next generation doesn't necessarily believe that, I think, is as big a concern as whether or not they really will, you know, do better. So because I think that some of that hope and optimism makes a huge difference in how they actually do do. And I want to jump back to something you said when we were talking about this whole American dream. You also mentioned that when someone's single, they feel lonely. I worry a lot about loneliness as an epidemic. Absolutely. We saw a big jump in the number of people who were reporting loneliness and not feeling connected to their community. And I think that that says something about our society today. I mean, the survey is coming at sort of the tail end of the two COVID years. And so you wonder if some of that was because we were locked in our houses. But it could also be because our society isn't doing as well at creating institutions and connections between people. So, I mean, I see my own kids, like you said, you know, I have teenagers and they spend a lot of time on their phones or playing video games. And, you know, are they getting that face-to-face time with friends and family that they should be getting? And as we see, you know, the religious attendance drop, right? I mean, people who are religious and go to church actually get more connection time than people who don't. And so, Again, some of these institutions that create community and help us to feel that connectedness to other people, we're seeing people walk away from those institutions. And so I think that is causing some of these problems. You know, as the pandemic was accelerating in those early and mid-months of 2020, we did church news interviews with every member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And Elder D. Todd Christofferson wanted to speak about single members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He was worried about the isolation, about loneliness. And he said, as a society, we need to have a constant consciousness about one another. It feels like 
the American Family Survey is another alarm bell that we should be being a little more conscious of the people that we live around. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think about some of the single people in my ward who really struggled during those COVID years and felt so lonely and isolated because, you know, there were reasons we were isolating from one another, but the need to reach out was so important during those years. And I don't know, did we do a good job? I hope so, you know, but yeah, we do. We need to absolutely be conscious. And I think this survey does show, right, some of those problems. And I mean, families themselves seem like they're pretty happy. And when people are married and are in a family, they're reporting um, much more happiness than people who are not. And so how do we convince more people? How do we extend the opportunity to get married to more people? I mean, I think these are public policy problems that are really tricky. There isn't much that the government can do at the end of the day to promote the institution of marriage or parenthood. At least we haven't seen policies that have have had effects in this area. And so what can we do as a society? What can we do as neighbors, you know, to encourage, first of all, to encourage or to help people who might feel lonely and then to encourage our children, our neighbor, you know, people to look at marriage and family as as a positive thing. And, you know, I think that we all assume as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that we value marriage. But certainly we've read BYU studies that show that the marriage age is getting later and later, especially in American society, but certainly in some European areas as well. And so did we have any indication or do you have any indication of of what else we could do? What is it that gives us confidence in the ability to enter a marriage union? Yeah, so the survey doesn't necessarily give us a lot of indication. I think we as parents and, you know, community members can speak positively about these things. Sometimes I think on social media, there's a lot of like, oh, marriage and kids are so hard. You know, I think about some of my friends who, whether they're with a partner or single, how they hear people talking about having kids and like, it's just so hard, you know, and we need to be conscious of that, of how we talk about our marriages and our families, because they are great, right? I mean, there's hard things. Of course there are, you know, but most of us, in fact, that does bear out in the survey. Most of us are happy in our marriages. 75% of the people that we surveyed said that they felt like their marriage was secure. I mean, that's a higher number than I think most people think would be. And so, most people feel happy and secure in their marriage relationships. Well, I love that. I was thinking about the pandemic again. And in November of the year 2020, when President Russell M. Nelson asked not just Latter-day Saints, but everyone across the world to use social media as an opportunity to give thanks. And one of the things that I noticed immediately is that family was something people were immediately grateful for. And I wondered how that played for people who didn't have those relationships, if that was hard for them to see social media feeds filled with everyone else's family. But it also directed me to a place to know that this is where people find their joy, in the comfort of secure and very happy relationships. Absolutely. I mean, relationships matter so much. And I think, too, you know, it's not just marriage and Having children, it's also like being an aunt or being a grandma or, you know, being a sister. I know I find so much joy in the relationships that I have with my siblings and, you know, my nieces and nephews. And I think most of us have family, right? Whether it's 
our marriage and our children or, you know, our extended family. And I think, yes, relationships matter. I mean, that is, I think, one of the messages, like, is marriage dying is like sort of the pessimistic message. And then on the flip side is this message of relationships matter for human flourishing and happiness. And I think, you know, again, we as Latter-day Saints know that, right? But it's amazing when you see these things in like data, when the data bear out exactly what you thought it would say. (laughs) And while we're talking about the pandemic and isolation, we also saw other things manifest during this time, including racial tensions and a lot of political divisiveness. And certainly the survey also reflected some of this political divisiveness that we've seen in our country in recent years. Yeah, I mean, when you ask people how they feel about issues, you do see some pretty stark differences on issues like immigration, on what's going on in schools, student loan, debt relief. Across the board, you're seeing very different ideas of what should happen from the right and the left. But it's interesting because this year they also sort of carved up the electorate by strong Democrats and then moderate and then strong Republicans and moderate Republicans. And the moderates are closer than I think we realize. And they actually make up a smaller percentage of the parties. But there are areas of overlap. Like most people think there should be some kind of student loan relief. But they want it to be for lower income people. So they weren't necessarily happy with what President Biden did with his latest um, student loan relief. But they do want to see that for lower income people. So, right, there's nuance here within policies that I think sometimes we don't capture when we just say the right and the left. Right. And so I think we should also look for that hopeful piece there. Well, and it sounds like in addition, when we think about politics, we think right or left but that actually many people reside in a very solid middle. Yes. Well, and even like on different issues, right? Like you might feel right of center on taxes, but left of center on immigration. Like as individuals, we really don't fit as neatly into these categories as people would like us to sometimes, you know? And so I think we need to honor that nuance that we all have and each other's different opinions on things and not just make assumptions about each other based on whether someone votes, you know, red or blue. And I am part of a politically divided marriage. My husband and I do not share political views often. There are times, certainly, when it comes to to moral issues or issues that our church leaders have spoken about where we can find some agreement. But our children would easily say that it is important for both of us to vote so that we can cancel out the other's vote. (laughs) But did the survey tell us anything about people who may have different political views in marriages? Yeah, so people were more likely to say it was okay to marry someone of a different religion than they were of a different political party. And so, yeah, I mean, that... That's concerning to me. I mean, our politics, I think, have become almost like our religious faith on some level. Like we have become so tribal, you know, that people aren't willing to cross political divides in a marriage. That seems really extreme to me. And especially it's interesting when you look at younger people, uh, women tend to be much more left of center and men tend to be much more right of center. So if you find women and men who are not willing to cross that political divide, you're going to have a whole bunch of people who can't find partners, you know. <laughs> so maybe that's why our young people are struggling to get married. But yeah, no, I think, I mean, and especially over the past few years, tensions have been so heightened around political issues. I do think it has caused 
tension in marriages, in families. And so how do we cross those divides? How do we heal our families and not let politics become something that divides us? I mean, my husband and I agree on most things, but we've had a few disagreements and sometimes it gets tense, you know, and then because I, I mean, I write about politics and think about it way too much. So um, <laughs> we, you know, there have definitely been times where we have had some disagreements, but, you know, at the end of the day, that needs to matter less. And I think it does matter less to both of us than the marriage, the love that we share for each other. Well, and this idea that people may be more concerned about political divisions than religious divisions says that they might associate more with a political party than even any religious affiliation. Yes, absolutely. Oh, and I mean, we are seeing that church attendance and, you know, weekly church attendance especially has gone down. And so, you know, what does that mean for families and communities and That's exactly right. I mean, again, this idea of being tribal, like you're more tribal about like your political identity than you are about these other parts of your life. And I don't know, that doesn't feel like a very good thing. Yeah. You know, on a recent Church News podcast, we had Judge Thomas Griffith. He's a former retired federal court judge. He lives in Washington, D.C. And he talked about the political divisiveness he was seeing in this nation and what a concern it was to him. And then he talked about how Latter-day Saints are especially equipped to heal a divided nation. And he quoted Eugene England, a a late professor that uh, worked for years at BYU. And he said that the way the church is organized trains and teaches its members to deal with differences. And he said, first of all, we're all organized into wards. By geography, so we don't get to pick who we worship with. And so in every ward, there are people of different economic levels, different ethnic backgrounds, different professions, and different ages. And we all worship together. And he says, and then we're actually asked to serve with one another. And in the process, we learn that God loves those people as much as he loves us, and that we actually learn to love them the way Heavenly Father loves them. And so the organization of the church actually bridges divisions. He said we should be going out into society and healing political divides. No, absolutely. And I have to give a shout out to the ward that I grew up in, the Richmond Hill Ward in um, just outside Toronto, Canada. Um, My ward had, I don't know, we had so many different nationalities. I think it was like over 70 at one count. And, you know, big socioeconomic like variation. And it was such an awesome word to grow up in. And really, it's this idea that President Nelson has talked about that your identity first should be as a child of God. You know, that I felt that in my word growing up, that they saw each other as brothers and sisters, you know, in Christ, and that that was their most important identity. And so a lot of these other divisions didn't matter or, you know, these different identities that do matter. But, you know, that the thing that matters the most is that we are all children of God. And so I feel like I got a really good opportunity to grow up in a world where that was demonstrated on a regular basis. Well, and I think that we are seeing that reflected so much in church communities. You know, the rest of what he said in this landmark address to young adults, and we'll link to it from the podcast, President Nelson talked about the most important identities and said, you know, we should all identify first as a child of God and then second as a child of the covenant and that our covenants are so important. And that third, we're all disciples of the Savior Jesus Christ. 
And you think of the church's efforts to build temples. At conference, President Nelson announced 18 new temples. That brought the number of operating and announced and under construction temples to 300. I mean, it's amazing. You know, and growing up, my family was sealed when I was 11 in the Washington, D.C. temple, you know, so it was an 11 or 12 hour drive, you know, to get to the closest temple. And then a few years later, the Toronto temple was built. I mean, it just I could feel that difference having a temple that was close by and the difference that made for our family and for, you know, our community, our faith community, especially I do. I think that there are so many things. And both my parents are converts. And so I got to have sort of a front row seat to the difference that religion can make in the lives of people who do make those covenants. You know, my dad had intellectual disabilities. So I think his family didn't even think he would have kids or um, have a family. And my aunt had been a judge and, you know, was revered in her community, said to my parents later in life and said to us kids, like, what is it that's different about your family? And she could feel something, you know, she didn't expect her brother to have this sort of happy, stable family. And and it was, we could share with her that, of course, it was our faith that allowed us to, you know, overcome a lot of the limitations that she saw in my father and, and what she would think would happen to his family. So, you know, I know that faith does play a difference in families. And so, again, as we see these numbers of people who are going to church, attending church, going down, you know, you wonder what effect that will have on society. Well, and certainly this survey is teaching us a lot about what happens when we prioritize or love our families. Yes. And there is, I mean, the people who do have children, I mean, they're saying they are spending time with their children. They're eating dinner with them. Over 70% of families say they eat dinner at least once a week together. Over half of families say they do chores together and they do activities at home together you know, people are prioritizing their families when they have them. And so that says something about where we are today as well, right? That there is this idea that families do matter. And, you know, I was talking to someone who works in Washington, D.C., said, look, everyone, politicians love to talk about families and they love, every party loves families, right? So that's something that can help us bridge that partisan divide. We all love at least the idea of families and, you know, the idea that we need to support families. Well, and I'm totally interested in the results that talk about family dinner. Over the years, we've written a lot about family dinner at Church News and even quoted some studies that said, if you want your kids to go to an Ivy League school, don't be driving them all over to all these extracurricular activities. Just sit down and have dinner with them every night. Yes. And my kids will laugh if they hear, I am not great at having a sit down. First of all, I'm a terrible cook, so I'm not great at having a sit down family dinners. But I I know that that time, really what it's about at the family dinner and sitting around together is about having communication and talking to your families and your kids. And I know that that matters. And we talk a lot in our family. So we're not so great at the dinner part, but we are great at talking. (laughs) And, you know, the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University, where you did your graduate work in New York City, actually found in a study that they released in 2007 that children who eat dinner with their families are also less likely to smoke or drink or use drugs. Yeah. No, I mean, there really are so many benefits that come from this dedicated time every day sitting down with your family, having those conversations, making those relationships matter, you know, showing your children that those relationships matter and making those connections. I think with them, that is just clearly so important. Now, I want to talk for a little bit about you've lived in so many different areas. You've seen 
the United States of America from many different vantage points. What have you learned as you have moved so much and actually analyzed families in different geographic areas? Yeah, I think that, you know, families love each other and families like to do things together no matter where they live. And it's interesting. I mean, family might look different in certain parts of the country, Um, You know, some of our wards, we were in a New York City ward for a little while in Queens. And, you know, there were more single parents and more, there were different kinds of families there, but there was so much love, right? And those families and everywhere we've lived, we've just had such great people that we've been able to associate with and, and to see the love that people have for one another that exists everywhere, which is which is great to see. Well, and church leaders have also noticed and spoken out against this trend. I think we've heard uh, most of the senior leaders of the church encourage young adults to get married. You know, don't wait for the most financially secure situation. Just if you find the right person, jump in. And uh, maybe that's the hope that we were uh, not seeing in the American Family Survey. Right. And I better not talk about my older children because they'll be not happy with me. But, <laughs> you know, I think I think it's hard. I, I am really grateful that I did not grow up in the age of Internet like or, you know, sort of online app dating. I don't know. They're just it feels like it's a weird time to be trying to connect with other people. And maybe that's just from my vantage point as, a you know, an older person who thinks that this is a strange way to find your partner. But, you know, it's I think there are challenges in this age that maybe we didn't have when we were younger. And like, how do we get young people into that face-to-face situation where they can talk to one another rather than having to communicate through devices? You know, I think we maybe need to think about how to do that better because I think this is a tricky time for kids. This is a huge worry I have as well. And I worry that the more time uh, young people spend online, the lonelier they are. I think I've actually read things that would back that up, but I don't know how we get our children to be hopeful and engage in relationships the way we did a generation ago. Yeah, well, and I mean, I have a lot of boys. I have four boys and one girl, and my teenage boys were really, like, excited about video games. (laughs) So, (laughs) so, I mean, sometimes it took me literally not—I wouldn't even take the remotes. I would just take the whole console, you know, and lock it away in my room so that they couldn't play anymore to force them out of the house. You know, I mean, I think sometimes as parents— There are things that we can do to try to limit that. But, you know, as they get older, you know, they get to make these choices on their own. But, you know, I think us talking about it and maybe thinking about how we can create opportunities for people to get off their devices and more in face-to-face spaces, you know, I think we can help with that. I think we can all work on that. I wonder if some of the loss in confidence in marriage is that young people don't have the role models that maybe they did a generation ago. You know, there was a time when we saw happy marriages on television where families gathered around the television at night to watch it together, uh, where society was just a little slower paced. Yeah, absolutely. You know, do kids see their parents talking to each other? I have been as guilty of, of being on my phone as my children have, you know, and not engaging enough with, you know, my husband or my kids in the evening. And so are we setting that example? Are we letting our kids see all of marriage, like the good and the bad, you know, the how we get through hard times and letting them feel that like confidence? 
that they will be able to build their own happy marriages. You know, I think that the kids need to have that hope, right? That rather than this idea of perfection, you know, this hope that they can build something that can last. Well, in the recent October General Conference, I thought was historic in, for many, many reasons. But one of the most interesting things that happened to me was the release of the new For Strength of Youth, A Guide for Making Choices. We actually had a church news podcast on that with the Young Men General Presidency because a lot of people thought, oh, the church is, is lowering their standards. But actually what our leaders were saying was that the ultimate standard is the Savior Jesus Christ and that in all things, in all of our interactions, in all of our choices, we can look to him as an example, as a mediator, as someone who we can pattern our lives after that may make a lot of our decisions easier. Right. And I think this idea, too, that, right, rather than have like these checklists, we need to stumble around a little bit and figure things out, right? And giving our kids sort of that space to, you know, learn how to make decisions on their own, which is so hard as a parent. I always want to just jump in and, you know, this is how you do it. You know, this is this is the roadmap you should follow. And But letting them learn how to create their own roadmap and then follow it, that's, I think, such a great thing for them to learn to do as a young person. You know, I have too many friends who didn't get that opportunity to really figure that out for themselves when they were young. And you see them kind of stumbling through that a little bit in their 20s and 30s. I think that's not the time you want to be learning that, right? You need to learn how to make decisions and how to correct yourself as a teenager. I think that's the best time to do that. And I wish we could talk about the state of the family in America and the American Family Survey much longer because there are really some very interesting findings in there. We will link to the entire survey from the podcast notes. And then as we conclude, I want to pose the same question that we always conclude our podcast with and then give you the final word. And the question is, what do you know now? And so uh, what do you know now after studying and writing about the results of the American Family Survey and how has that confirmed your belief in prophets and apostles and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Yeah. So I would say that family is a gift. Relationships are a gift. They are a gift from our loving God to, you know, give us an opportunity to to feel His love on this earth as we love each other. You know, we we help feel His love. We help share His love with each other. And so as I was looking at the results of the survey, just that um, message came through so strongly to me is that, you know, our relationships matter. And the more we lead into those relationships, the more we can learn about our Heavenly Father and His love for us. You have been listening to the Church News Podcast. I'm your host, Church News Editor Sarah Jane Weaver. I hope you have learned something today about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints by peering with me through the church news window. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast. And if you enjoyed the messages we shared today, please make sure you share the podcast with others. Thanks to our guests, to my producer, Kellyanne Halverson, and others who make this podcast possible. Join us every week for a new episode. Find us on your favorite podcasting channel or with other news and updates about the church on thechurchnews.com. Mm-hmm.